This morning's scripture, scripture comes from Revelation 11th chapter, 15th verse. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. Open your Bibles to Luke 19. That's where we're going to be for our study. I want us to look at a parable, the parable of the minas, uh, similar to the parable of talents, but I know for me, I'm more familiar with the talents. We talk about that one more. We teach about that one more, uh, but it's not exactly like the parable of the talents. The parable of the talents starts with different amounts, if you remember, but they end up with the same rewards, you know, come and enjoy uh, the, the Lord. But the parable of the, the minas start with the same amounts, and they end with different rewards. And to be frank, it's a difficult parable. I think that's one reason why we don't talk a lot about it. We don't preach a lot about it. Don't hear many lessons about it. But since we're studying transformations, these before and after, I think it's a good parable for us to study because there are some great points for us to learn about how we transition from here to eternity, the ultimate before and after. So look at your Bibles, Luke 19, uh, starting at verse 11. The verses are going to be on the screen if you want to follow along. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So a little bit of background. Jesus is headed to Jerusalem, the capital city. He's been in Jericho, about 17 miles apart. He's going to Jerusalem. This is the last time they would be going to Jerusalem. Enthusiasm was high. The people were expecting at any moment Jesus was going to declare himself the Messiah and then he was going to be the king that they've all been looking for and take control of the world. But what Jesus knew in the course of the next two weeks he was going to be crucified and die for the sake of all mankind. Not fulfill the expectations that a lot of the people were looking for, anticipating, thinking it was going to be there any moment. So he told this parable to give his disciples, and through inspiration we have it, that we have a better understanding of what's going to transpire. So in the study of before and after, I want us to see four basic truths that will help us to transition. The first one is this. Jesus Christ is sovereign, but his kingdom, his complete kingdom, is delayed. There's a sense where part of it was initiated on the day of Pentecost, but it won't come into its completion until He comes back. Jesus is the King, and His total dominion is going to take time. Look there in our text, verse 12. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then return. Now, as far as we know, this is the only parable that Jesus told that was based on a historical event. Now, we would read through this and and not catch that, but I guarantee everyone who heard this knew exactly what Jesus was referencing. Josephus, a first century historian, tells us there was a political power struggle that took place in 4 B.C. We all remember King Herod. He's the one who was on the throne when Jesus was born, and we think of him as being a very evil king. Well, when he died, he, he willed his territory to his three sons, Philip, Antipas, and Archelaus. Well, they all contested the will. None of them liked it. None of them wanted it to be the way he said. And Archelaus, a third son, was given the territory of Judea. So they contested the will. They went to Rome so that Augustus Caesar 
would have the final say. Well, what happened though, is as they were making their way to Rome, there were 50 Jews who did not want Archelaus to be over Judea. So they took another route. They beat him to Rome to talk to Caesar and said they'd had enough of the Herod family. He'd been so evil for their people. They did not want him to be the king. They said, please, appoint someone else. But Caesar disregarded their request. He appointed Archelaus as the ruler. He did make one concession, though. He wasn't called king. If you remember, you read in your Bible, he was called Tetrarch. So his title was changed. When Archelaus took over, he, first order of business, and you might guess, rounded up those 50 men who had gone to oppose him and had them brutally executed and took all of their wealth, all of their possessions. And this event stood in the memories of all the Jews. They remembered that. And not much time, maybe 30 years had passed, and so Jesus tells this story. See, we know from the Bible that says when Joseph and Mary decided to come back from hiding the baby Jesus in Egypt, they had learned that Archelaus was reigning in Judea. And the Bible says, having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So these words would have been very much in the, their minds of all the people. His audience, his original audience, knew exactly what Jesus was referencing, this historical event. Look in verse 13. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Now a mina was a unit of money, a large unit of money, about three months' wages. I'll give you a moment to think about your salary and how much money that would be. And if you're not a math major, I'll give you another couple of moments to figure out. That's a lot of money, isn't it? Three months' wages. Pretty good chunk. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. We don't want this man to be our king. What do you think about that phrase? We don't want this man to be our king. When Herod, when the wise men said to Herod, who is he who's been born king of the Jews? Herod said, we don't want this man to be our king. We don't want him to rule over us. And he ordered all the babies in and around Bethlehem to be executed. When Jesus began his ministry in Nazareth, he stood up in the synagogue and he said, you remember, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And the basic message of those who heard him say, we don't want this king to rule over us. And they threw him over the edge of the cliff, or at least they tried to. John 7, 7, Jesus said, The world hates me because I testify that that what it does is evil. When he rode into, a, uh, into Jerusalem on a donkey, the people lined the streets. You remember when they said, Hail to the king! But the people, the religious leaders said, We don't want this man to be our king, and they plotted to kill him. The night before they crucified him, Jesus said, They have seen the miracles, and yet they have hated both me and the Father for no reason. Later, when the disciples went out in the streets of Jerusalem, and they said, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Their message, remember? We don't want him to be the king. We don't want him to have ruler over us. So they imprisoned the disciples. They stoned Stephen. They beheaded James. They, they did all kinds of ways to oppose the apostle Paul. And Jesus predicted it all. Matthew 10, 22, All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. So even today, when the church says Jesus is King of Kings, we shouldn't be surprised 
When the message we hear back from the world, we don't want this man to rule over us. So take his commandments off the courtroom walls. Take the prayer out of the uh, sporting events. Take the Bible out of the public arena. You take church out of politics. And we'll see all of that happening. In Philippians 2, Paul writes that when Jesus ascends into heaven, God is going to crown him king of kings. Look at verse 9 and 11. God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But notice his words here. Every knee should bow. Every knee should confess. Should. But they don't, do they? I mean, you look around and you feel like, am I the only one? Or am I just one of a few? See, Jesus Christ reigns now in the hearts of His followers, those who believe in Him, but He's not Lord over all the hard hearts. He's not Lord over every raunchy entertainment. He's not Lord over every shady business activity. He's not Lord over every humanistic classroom teacher. He's not even Lord over every church's decision. The Bible says that temporarily, Satan is the prince of this world. Remember? The the Bible says he's called in the Bible the God of this age. The prince of darkness. And Satan bragged to Jesus. Remember when he was tempting him? Bow down and worship me and I'll give you all these kingdoms. Don't deny that Satan has power and Satan has dominion. And Satan has position right now. That's why Christians are foreigners, the Bible says, or strangers in the world. And there's much in our world that is temporarily under Satan's control. And that's a good thing for us to know. It's a good thing for us to acknowledge. It helps our theology to be accurate according to Scripture. See, in Revelation 19, it says that when Jesus Christ returns, one day He's going to judge and make war. And it's going to be an unpleasant time for some. Revelation 19, look at verse 15 and 16. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. On his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. King of kings and Lord of lords. But that's yet to be. That hasn't happened yet. He hasn't returned yet. Right now, we have to wait for his full administration to come. Yes, his kingdom was inaugurated on the day of Pentecost. It's sort of like we're saved the moment that, that we give our life to Christ, but our salvation is not complete until we get to heaven. The same way with the kingdom. So we have to tolerate temporary victories by the adversary. We have to patiently love and try to teach those who hate Him and oppose Him. And if we understand that Jesus' reign is, is imminent, but it's delayed, it's not fully here, it can make a big difference in our attitude. And I want to make sure you get this. When we understand this, we quit blaming God for all the problems of this world. For example, I read about a woman who was just distraught. Her husband, for, in her mind, no apparent reason, just packed up and left. Left her, left kids, left the city, just left. She was devastated. She couldn't understand it. Through her tears, she said this. And you can imagine, she said, it just makes me so angry at... And you know how she's going to answer So angry at God for allowing this. But that's not what she said. Here's what she said. It just makes me so angry at Satan for tempting my husband and so angry at Satan for trying to destroy our family and our witness. I thought that's true. 
That's the right perspective. That's the biblical perspective. So quit blaming God for the ugliness that Satan is causing. But sometimes well-meaning, Bible-believing people get this confused. I know there's a popular theological system that says God causes everything to happen. You ever heard that? Maybe you believe that. That God causes everything to happen. Uh, you might even call it extreme Calvinism, if you studied that line of thinking. Extreme Calvinism teaches that God predestines every move, everything we do, kind of like puppets. Even though we may not like it, He's causing everything. I don't believe that way. And if you do, you shouldn't be surprised at me saying this because you believe God is telling me to say this because that's what you believe, right? I mean, you have to think this through a little bit. One day, Jesus Christ is going to return as king. And on that day, everybody's going to know it. But until then, we have to be patient. Well, number two, here's the second lesson. His servants will be held accountable when Jesus returns. His servants are going to be held accountable when Jesus returns. Look at verse 12 again. Noble man, a man of noble birth, went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten, ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. He was made our king, however, and returned, and we, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. Now note here, the owner expected it to return a profit. And the Lord has given us a treasure. He's trusted us with this treasure. And we think of this in several ways. that It can represent our money. It can represent our talents. It can represent our children. It can represent the gospel. He's entrusted all kinds of valuable treasures to us. And individually, we are responsible for how we use those. And to make an effort to increase that gift. If He's given you the gift of making money, then you make more money. Not for yourself. Not to hoard it. But as he says, to share it. If he's given you the gift to teach or to lead or to sing or, or, or to program computers to inspire children, you use that for the kingdom's sake. You continue to grow. You should be better, more talented, more able today than you were five years ago. You should continue to grow and use your talents for the Lord. But I really think what he's talking about here, if you make the parallel, is about the gospel. That he's trusted us with the gospel. We expand it and develop it into our lives to make us a better Christian now than we were five years ago. That we're continuing to grow and to develop. We're following Jesus more closely. Listen to 2 Peter 1, verses 5 through 8. You've heard these verses before. Make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self control, to self control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. And then look at verse 8. If you possess these qualities in increasing measure, in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, when the Lord returns, He's going to hold us accountable for what He's entrusted to us, what He's given us. He's going to audit the books. He's going to evaluate our effort, how hard we tried our productivity, what we accomplish, and what we think, and what we've done, we think in secret, is going to be made known. It's going to be made public. Luke 12, 2 and 3. 
This is a very sobering verse. It says, There is nothing concealed that would not be disclosed or hidden that would not be made known. What you said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you whispered in the ear of the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. You know, we have cameras everywhere these days, not just on our cell phones, but I mean video cameras that are tracking our every move. You go into the bank, they're there. You go into the store, they're there. You go into an elevator, they're there. The, the security cameras are everywhere. Law enforcement officers who are experts in the field say the average person is recorded in some way 8 to 12 times a day. And most of those you don't even know it. Some of you have video cameras in your house. Like a little surveillance to watch maybe your infant child in, in, in the nursery. Or maybe on your computer so that you can Skype a friend. And so we're kind of used to that in a way. But sometimes we think what we do in private is private. But it's not. What do you think about God having a camera recording your every move? And that you have to give an answer to that. When we don't follow the instructions, we stumble and fall. We turn our back. We cut a corner. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 36, I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word that they have spoken. John Stott wrote this, Nothing will more quickly rid us of laziness and coldness of hypocrisy, cowardice, and pride than the knowledge that God sees, hears, and takes into account. Here's the third lesson I want us to get. The saved will be rewarded in proportion to their faithfulness. The saved will be rewarded in proportion to their faithfulness. We don't talk about this much. But look at verse 16. The first one came and said, Sir, your mind has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mind has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Now, before I talk much about these verses, I want to make two clarifying points. Number one, we are saved by grace, not by works. We are rewarded according to our works. We don't earn our salvation. That's a good thing for us just to remember. The Bible teaches us that. It's a gift we receive by placing our trust in Jesus Christ. So when we speak about reward, we're not talking about going to heaven. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a special acknowledgement that belongs to the faithful. And here's the second point. The sins of the believers have been deleted from the record. That's a good thing to know. That's a great thing to remember. And it's good news. The Christian is not going to have to give an account on judgment because it's all been washed away. It's all been buried. And the Lord remembers them no more. Psalm 103.12 As far as the east is removed from the west, so far as God removed our transgressions from us. Gone. Now think about what that means. He's not going to retrieve it. He's not going to bring back that videotape and you got to give it. No, it, it's washed away. It's cleaned. It's buried. And that's a good thing for us to remember. But the Bible does say, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Well, how do you make sense of all of this? Well, let, let me share this. One author picture judgment day kind of like graduation from high school 
Now, most of us have been there. Maybe we go to them frequently. You know the, the routine. This is what the author says. The, the special students are honored while those who just barely made it are given diplomas. Isn't that true? The assistant principal reads, Joanne Johnson, member of the National Honor Society, salutatorian, perfect 4.0 average, all-state in soccer, president of the FCA, national merit scholar. And the family beams and everybody applauds enthusiastically. Then the assistant principal calls out the next name, Michael Jones. Michael receives his diploma, but there's no honors associated with his name. People applaud politely. He's delighted to graduate, but no special awards, but neither are his failures made public. The assistant principal doesn't say Michael was kicked out of social studies class three times in one month, suspended for coming to school drunk two times, failed English his sophomore year, and was a constant pain to his teachers. Here's your diploma. We don't do that, do we? Those failures are disregarded. He graduates. Nothing is said. I kind of, I relate to that. And I can't help but think that that's not an a, a, a unfair parallel with what Judgment Day is going to be like for the Christian. There's no disclosure of embarrassing. Peter, you denied me three. Well, everybody already knows that one. Done. Bought. Paid for. Forgotten. Already answered. Done. This is what I think is what Paul was trying to say in 1 Corinthians 3, in verse 12 through 15. Look at the words here. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones. Now, these are valuable metals. Think about that. That don't burn unless they're under intense heat. But he doesn't just list those. He goes on and says, wood, hay, or straw. Well, those are extremely combustible, right? His work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it's burned up, he will suffer loss. If he, he himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Is it fair to say that some will barely be saved? See, we think of heaven as being like Disneyland or Disney World that, you know, if you're in, you're in and all the rides are free and you're all on equal footing. Or is there such thing of different rewards? Some barely get in and then others, they get more. Is that what Jesus is teaching here? See, God is going to judge fairly, but not necessarily reward equally. I think that's what this verse is teaching here. There will be degrees of reward in heaven. Think about the person who lives as a hedonist all of his life and then on, on his deathbed becomes a Christian. Gives his life to the Lord and, and he's saved. Is he, is he going to be rewarded the same as those martyrs? As the writer of Hebrews talked about who were sawed in two? that we've seen on our own TV screens, people who bear the name of Jesus even today, and they're shot? Do they get the same reward? The Lord told those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake to rejoice and to be exceedingly glad because great is your reward in heaven. Ephesians 6, 8, Paul says, The Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And those rewards will go far beyond what we've earned. 
See, in this parable, you'd expect the king to say, well, you've earned 10 more minas. I'll give you 20% increase. You know, here's more money. Here's your raise. But he doesn't do that. In fact, what does he give him? He gives him 10 cities. He gives him 10 cities. God's like this generous, wealthy father who loves to lavish gifts on his children. And he's promised to reward, we know this, even a cup of water offered in his name. The reward the Father in heaven has in store exceeds anything you've earned, anything you've deserved. But he takes note. He knows of your sacrifice. He knows of your effort. He knows how much you're, you're trying. He knows. And we will spend eternity in all the generosity of God. One man told about there's three friends that would meet for breakfast once a week. The standing breakfast. And two of his buddies were very diet conscious. And have you ever noticed that people who are very diet conscious are also like to talk about it? <clears throat> you too? You noticed that? Well, that's what happened here. He said they would eat the egg beater eggs and the skim milk and the oat bran muffins. But not him. He would eat whole milk and, and real eggs and biscuits and gravy and sometimes get two. You know, that's the way that he would enjoy his breakfast. And his friends would say, one of these days, you're going to regret the way you eat. You're going to die in your 60s, and we're going to live to be in our 80s or 90s. He just smiled, and here's, this was his reply. Sure, I can see it now. The two of you are going to be in a nursing home, sitting in wheelchairs, senile, unable to do anything for yourselves. And one of you will say, just think, poor Richard is in heaven missing all of this. Our reward in heaven is going to be beyond what we can comprehend. It is going to be so great. Beyond what we've earned. And I take it that, that the reward is going to involve some type of responsibility. Is that not what this parable is teaching? See, sometimes what we think of in heaven is this the word rest. And we think of it, it's just going to be eternal rest and it's all about the rest. And I think there is a component of rest there. But notice here, the owner does not say to his servants, you've earned ten minas? Wow, you worked hard. Take a break. Why don't you rest a while? He doesn't say that. In fact, he says, here's you ten cities. Now, to be mayor over one city would be hard work. Imagine being over ten cities. That's a challenge. Again, I think there's going to be rest in heaven. The Bible does talk about that. But if you think of it being resting forever, might I remind you of a snow week? Do I need to elaborate on that? You know, the first day, snow day. Home from work, home from school. Everybody's happy. Sleeping in, you know, just all that. The second day, third day, fourth day, we're looking for a reason to go somewhere. Isn't it true? Why? It's, it's in our makeup. There, it's in our core. It's the way God created us. The, we love to relax, sure. But we're at our best when we're meaningfully engaged in something productive. That's who we are. That's how God made us. In His own image. The Bible says His servants are going to serve Him. We'll praise the Lord. But I think this week has helped me to see this message. But what a compliment. What a compliment for someone who's done a good job to be given more work. And that kind of happens in life too, doesn't it? You do a good job at work and you get more work. 
You get more responsibility. It's just kind of part of it. How we serve the Lord today will determine our reward and our, whatever you want to call it, our ministry, our service, and the life to come. And faithfulness now is preparation for blessed service then. Which brings me to the final point. The disobedient will be punished because of their wickedness. Verse 20. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here's your mina. I've kept it laid away in a, in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. Now, this servant made a couple of flagrant mistakes just, just right out of the gate. I want to acknowledge these. First, he was disobedient to the king. The king said, put these miners to work. He didn't do that. In fact, he put them on the shelf. But secondly, he was fearful of the king. He had a wrong understanding of the king's character, of his demeanor, of who he was. He thought of him as harsh and demanding man. When, if you look at the evidence of the story, he's not harsh. In fact, he's pretty loving and generous. He's a good man. But if he really did fear the king, wouldn't that motivate him to be obedient? Instead of just putting it on the shelf? That's what the text is here. Look at verse 22 and following. The master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put your money on deposit so that when I come back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. Was he afraid of the king? I don't think so. And the king calls him out on that. I think he was just all about himself. And I think we can relate to that. Think about a child who grows up in a Christian home, a Christian environment, good teaching, you know, good home life, good church life. And then when they leave home, they, they put their whole spiritual life on a shelf. They're good, decent people, but they're not seeking to follow God. They're just kind of putting that on hold. Doesn't use his keen mind to do good, to grow spiritually, to lead others to Christ. When he stands before God, he's going to be held accountable for the sins of omission. What he didn't do. In Matthew's Gospel, it talks about being cast out into outer darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But the king here called a more severe punishment on the rebellious. Not so much the lazy, but the rebellious. Verse 27, But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. See, this same king is generous and compassionate, but he's also a strong ruler. He's not a pushover. He's no doormat here. And the Bible teaches us that God is going to judge the rebellious. He gives opportunity after opportunity to hear the words, to come to faith. But if your message to God is, I don't want this king to rule over me, he'll let that be your choice. But eventually he'll judge. Revelation 20, 15, if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he is thrown to the lake of fire. Now, I know in most churches today, or I say most, in, in some, maybe it's most, the doctrine of hell is not talked about much. And if it is, it's air-conditioned. 
We kind of soft shoe it. We don't talk a lot about it. And I do think there will be degrees of punishment in hell as well. If you read through and do a study of that, you know the Bible says God judges justly. He judges the dead according to what is done, recorded in the books. And Jesus warned people about those who refuse to hear the good news. Matthew 10, 15, I tell you the truth. It will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. More bearable. More, less. I sense some degrees here. See, at the very best, hell is described as a place of fire and darkness and suffering and weeping. But the very worst, hell is eternal separation from all that is good in God. The Lord is loving. The Lord is patient. The Lord is good. He is full of grace. But He is not a wimp. He is not a pushover. He is not a doormat. Hebrews chapter 20, in Hebrews chapter 10, talks about those who turn their nose up at God. So it's a, a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But the great news, and you know this already, but the great news is that Jesus came in the flesh. That's where we are in the story. He came in the flesh to give His life to cleanse us from our sins so that we could go to heaven with Him forever to save us from hell. Matthew, Mark 16, 16, Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. I like the way Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 15. Look in verse 51 and 52. Notice what, note what he says. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. See, this whole series is about before and after. The transformation that Jesus can make in your life. And we talked about how He changed Zacchaeus from being selfish to being generous. How He changed Bartimaeus from darkness to light. But the greatest change of all is going to happen when He comes back to claim His own. We shall be changed. We don't know a lot about that. We know we'll get new bodies. Paul wrote that the body that is sown is perishable, but it's raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. It leaves us with more questions than answers. But look at Revelation 21, verse 4 and 5. These words just give us hope. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, nor mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne and said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write these down. For these words are trustworthy and true. I mentioned a moment ago, Philippians 2, where it said, every knee should bow. Every tongue should confess. Paul wrote that. But Paul also wrote in Romans 14 that every knee will bow. Every knee will. Every tongue will confess. If you've never confessed Jesus, that you believe He's the Son of God, today's the day. Don't put it off anymore. We always have water ready because when you commit your life to Jesus, you have your sins washed away in baptism. It's like a burial. In a way, you emulate what He did for you on the cross. He died. His body was put in the tomb and He comes back to life. You come back to life. He calls it a new creation. 
You get His Holy Spirit living in you. Our invitation song is thank you, Lord. And there's a part of that, there's a line in there that talks about thank for what you've done, but there's also a line about what He's going to do. His kingdom has come, yes, but not fully. I pray it will come soon. And if you can't pray it will come soon, let us help you. Once you come as we stand and sing to encourage.